0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Ladies and gentlemen, it is
1: now time! Oh, no. Oh, yeah! I finished these fights.
2: Give me a hell, yeah!
0: Top Rope Nation. Learn to love
2: it's the best thing going today. Coming at you a little
1: earlier this week than usual because we have a very special show for you today. Since Dark Side of the Ring season three premiered late last week, life and times of Brian Pillman have been on everyone's mind, and so we reached out to a good friend of the show to come on and talk about the documentary and its production so he is the author of the 2017 wrestling observer newsletter wrestling book of the year crazy like a fox the definitive chronicle of brian pillman 20 years later and you know outside of pillman's family and closest friends you're not likely to find more of an authority on the man's life so making his fourth appearance on top rope nation i'd like to welcome back to the show mr liam o'rourke liam how are you doing today
2: I am, I'm happier than a clamming high tide, Ryan, to be back on the show. <laughs> I, like I say, we, we couldn't, you know, Justin's not with us, which, you know, m- maybe for the best, because I had some, some strong words about Tottenham. But I'm, I'm always thrilled to have uh, Ryan and Kyle on the line with me here. Talk about Brian Pillman, no less, which is always great. So. Well,
1: you know, Justin has been trying to convert me into a Tottenham fan, so maybe I just I won't bring that up anymore. But I'm, I'm still a newbie. Maybe you can yeah. swim me to your side, Liam.
2: Well I was gonna say if he well, wolves aren't doing too great. So I was gonna say if, uh, if if I if Justin was here and he started giving me shit about wolves, I would have been off this podcast quicker than Tottenham were at the Super League. Um, <laughs> but again, that's by the by. We're not here to talk about football or soccer.
1: <laughs> well, hey man, it's been let's see, about nine months or so, I think you since you were on the show last. You did our SummerSlam fantasy draft last summer. Uh, you've been, like I said, four times, you've been a great supporter of Top Rope Nation pretty much since day one. I want to thank you for everything you've done to help get the word out about our show. I mean, the first time you came on the pod, our our downloads in the UK like exploded. So thank you for putting up all those billboards. I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> that's all right. You know, I, there's a, it, it's a very easy show to uh, to get into and, and be consistent with. So I, that's one thing that I I miss about a lot of wrestling podcasts and it's, it's kind of a rare thing for me to kind of latch onto one and really like it. And Kyle Ross has obviously his is obvious talents. So I'm not going to, yeah, he, he's done it twice now with me, hooking me on a podcast. And, and obviously yourself, Ryan and Justin, you guys are just the best. You got a great rapport and I love this show. So keep up the good you. work yourself. I will, however, not
0: ever forgive Liam for aping all of my picks in the SummerSlam <laughs> draft. draft. <How>? Yeah. <laughs> he kept Taking both, I was like, all right, I just want one of these. And he would take both of them. And that thing that was <laughs> very harsh. Yeah, but I still lost. I still lost somehow. Yeah, the, the people are never right. You know that. <laughs> well,
1: that's true. <laughs> yeah, that was a great show. Last August, you guys. Go back in the archives, check it out. Um, Liam, first thing, I just want to start off by saying... I want to ask about your involvement in the documentary. Uh, we've known for a while that you were kind of working with the producers of Dark Side of the Ring on this. I don't really know the extent of, of how you worked on it, though, so I want to get your thoughts and your description of that. Your name was in the closing credits. I noticed that. There was also a scene of Jim Cornette reading your book on the show with a big smile on his face, which was pretty cool to see. So, what I mean, what was the extent of your involvement with Dark Side in making the documentary?
2: Yeah I think the last time I was on the show you asked me what I was involved with at the minute in wrestling and I had to very awkwardly say uh not much (laughs) yeah so basically what happened was last July uh Howard Sheffman who's one of the story producers with Vice got in touch with me basically telling me we want to do a dark side of the ring on Brian Pillman uh Evan loves the book and he wants to do a show and he basically he kind of talked around the fact that we believe we're going to get Steve Austin so this is a go if we, if we get the all clear on Austin this is going to happen and before any of that happens we wanted to talk to you so I, I went back and forth with Howard and we had a couple of good uh, you know back and forth had a long call where we basically it was essentially at that point I don't think Howard himself had read the book or at least not read much of it because he was asking me what should the documentary be who should we talk to and basically, use me as like a mythbuster for like some stories that were floating around on the internet about Brian. Stuff like uh, the time that they were at the Residence Inn and there was a hostage situation. Did Brian Pillman go in there and take the guy down by himself? And you know, all these little like internet things that have been flying around for a long time. He basically kind of used me as a as a foil to kind of um, separate fact from fiction. So I knew that it was coming, and I kind of helped. I hope got to steer the ship in a good direction. I was, I, I yeah, we'll talk about it. I'm sure, but um, I, I'm, I'm happy with the way that it went. Um, and so, yeah, that was pretty much my involvement was it was mostly at the front end. OK, yeah.
0: Um. Obviously, there are benefits to writing a book as opposed to trying to jam everything into a sub two hour documentary. Is there anything when you watch the doc, you're like, oh, I wish this would have been in. And it wasn't.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I was just thinking about this about an hour ago. And it was like that there's a few things. Because it's it's so hard. And one of the first things I said to Howard when this all started was I, I, I vividly read within the first five minutes saying to him, if you plan on trying to tell this story in, in one show, you're going to have a really hard time. And it's not a discredit to them and, and the work they do. But the, the, there's a reason that I felt there needed to be a book in the first place, which is that the story is so involved and it's so fascinating but it's there's so much to it that you can't really cram it in i thought wwe when they did their documentary in 2006 i thought they had a hard time with the 95 minutes or so that they had so, so i said to howard like you're going to need to find a way because you know there's a lot there's a lot of people that you can talk to and there's a lot that you can say and inevitably there were going to be things that were going to get either chopped or missed or there's only certain things you can focus on and i actually i outright made the the, the pitch but to howard when we talked about this in the beginning look what people are going to want to know and what they're going to be most interested about is the loose cannon. They're going to want to know about you know, the creation of the character, what the what the, the the end goals were, the ebb and flow of what happened leading to the Humvee wreck, leading to the end of his life. That period of time is going to be the most fascinating. Obviously, before that, as I kind of found out when I was doing the book, everything that led up to the loose cannon in his life kind of leads directly to the way he approaches the loose cannon. Um, part of the reason why it's such an interesting case. And so I really would have liked if there was a way that they could have kind of shoehorned a little bit more of the Bengal stuff in and, and, and the pre, even some of the pre wrestling stuff. They, they, they tried, they tried, man, they, they did a really good job. And I, I do, I do want to commend them because I think they did. They did a really, really damn good job on those two documentaries, but that is something I really wish like, ah, some of that stuff is so good. <laughs> Just think though,
0: Jim Ross, man, he had to be frothing into the mouth that he didn't get the Ed Block Courage Award uh, reference written in. (laughs) Second team All American. And by the way, the first team All American that year was a guy by the name of Refrigerator Perry. It (laughs) it was never a 1990 WCW pay per view without those two references.
2: I almost wasn't sure it actually was Jim Ross because of the lack of Ed Block Courage Award. <laughs> it had to get not the cutting room floor. He had yeah. to it. There's no way he didn't <laughs> say the Ed Block Courage Award. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but again just like you know, from talking to, to Kim Wood over the years and and, and email him in the previous weeks or so before this, I know that like they spoke to him for like four or five hours. So I could only you know, there's there's gotta be a ton of stuff on the cutting room floor because he would have tried to have told them everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so as you mentioned, you think they did a pretty good job kind of building up to that point early on in the documentary. What were your overall thoughts in the, in the finished product? You know, doing the two-parter, I think that was a, a good, like you said, there's no way they could have done this in one episode. So to make it two parts, you know, kind of like they did with the Benoit one, was good. Uh, we have talked a little bit about our thoughts, at least of part one last week on the podcast. But now that we've all seen the finished product, what did you make of it?
2: Very impressed. Very impressed that there's a lot to navigate there's A lot of fact and fiction to sift through, and there were a couple of times when because the first time I watched it, I was watching it through grit teeth. Man, I was just like, I'm I'm looking for the errors, I'm looking for the things that are gonna be wrong, I'm looking for oh god, they're gonna fuck this up. Here comes Eric on his Harley, who knows what's gonna happen here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm just thinking to myself, this could go real bad if if they don't tell this story right. And thankfully, they kind of were able, and again, I feel like they kind of followed the blueprint of the book in this sense, where like they they allowed everybody to have their say, but at the same time, the, the the narrative was was kept in line with what it should have been. And I thought they did a hell did a hell of a job, considering how many people they had as talking heads. Considering they could have had even more people as talking heads that were available. Um, uh, you know, again, hell, you know, just a really really commendable job. I think that there's, you know, there's always going to be things in a documentary with with subjects that are this complicated and this complex. Because believe me, the the, the real life stuff is far more complex than people see on the documentary and even more complex. I I did as best of the job as I could of trying to capture it in the book, but it's a crazy story that the Melanie Rochelle, Brian triangle. um, And that that was a really big focus in the first episode. And and that's, that's really tough to truly capture um, because there's there's a lot of elements in play there, but again, nothing but the highest, the, the highest regard for that. They did a hell of a job. I honestly think it may be the, one of the best jobs they've done. Maybe that or Owen on their show so far
0: you mentioned melanie i, I wanted to follow but i agree with you i do think it was a tippy top dark side of the ring was melanie portrayed fairly do you think uh particularly part one because you know that was the big talking point when everyone got to see that obviously um at times she can come across as, as for lack of a better term a heel in the book or in that documentary did you think that was a fair representation of her
2: oh <sighs> Man, that is such a complicated thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yes and no. She, the, 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 okay, so she, uh, she, there's a lot to break down here. So when I watched it the first time, like I said, I'm watching it through gritted teeth. I'm, I'm seeing that stuff the same way everybody else is. The second time I watched it, I'm catching things that I didn't catch the first time. And Melanie does come off pretty damn bad in the first one. Even more so than she maybe needed to, because I believe that as bad as Melanie dealt with the Rochelle situation and the custody issue, and obviously Britney hates her and it's called a pure evil. And I think there's a there's a stark thing when you first see her, if you haven't seen the most shots and you don't know what she looks like, and you see her for the first time, it's like, whoa, what the hell? That that's Melanie Pillman, you know, and it almost doesn't look like the same person. I thought that they, you know, it was fair in the sense that, yeah, she probably I mean. The story is what it is, and it's not pretty. But having said that, knowing the story very, very well, I believe, and I think this should be said, that Melanie took a bit of a bullet um, on that show, especially in part one, when she was telling about, talking about Rochelle and basically just admitting outright, yes, I, I, I did it wrong. I can't undo it. I, I, I messed up. Um, and obviously she did. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, Rochelle, the point is Rochelle was going down a very, very dark path. And she, things were really bad, worse than people know. And because of that, I think that there was a degree of the custody was not necessarily the wrong thing to do for Brittany's sake. The way that it all actually unfolded and some of the things that she did, you know, Melanie and Rochelle, the story that she tells about, you know, taking her away and stuff like that. And, you know, charges of child kidnapping and things like that, which again, and, and there's more to that as well. Um, there's a lot of bad stuff that was going on, but in, in that sense, it was it was really kind of hard to watch for me because it's like I know Melanie is the heel in a lot of ways in this story, but funnily enough, the stuff when I thought she came off the worst in the book, which is near the end of Brian's life and in the aftermath, they almost kind of babyfaced her a little bit in part two by almost kind of treating it like the Pillman death was the reason she and you know everything kind of went to hell, which may be the case. I'm certainly not want to judge that, but I just think that. You know, the, you know that the relationship was going to hell in a handbasket by the end and like i say it, in the book you know, it it talks a lot about like the, the all the court stuff that was going on and anger management classes for pillman and and you know oh god it was just it was just an absolute mess and um so yeah it was just it was a real it was a real tough balancing act watching that show because it's like on one hand i really want to be like yeah well she came off like a heel and she was always going to And then on the other hand, it's like, but at the same time, there's like a, it also helped her cause that they showed that fucking putrid thing the night after Billman died. And she gets to explain. Oh my God. The way Vince just shelled her on live TV. Yeah. I won't talk about drugs. So Melanie, how about them drugs? And then (laughs) the, the little wince at the corner of her mouth where it's like, you've just been You've just been worked, honey. Unfortunately, welcome to the business. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's like so crazy? This, you know, this is a question that we could send
0: around the horror, not just for Liam. It's like, you know, something's bad, right? You remember it being bad. It's got the narrative of being bad. And then you watch it again in the context of this documentary. And you're like, Jesus, that was really bad. Like (laughs) referring to Melanie on Raw, the next night, I was like, you know, it's very rare. I mean, I've seen so many things so many times. You know, in, in in this business, and but with that, it's just like, oh my god, that was that even worse than it's given credit for. It was just horrific that they did that. And you know, Jim yeah. Ross and Jim Cornette were both like, yeah, we didn't <laughs> like that, we didn't want it. So yeah, it was it, it was jarring how bad it was. Even Ryan, I mean, Ryan, I, what do you think? <laughs> I don't,
1: you know, like I remember watching it. I certainly haven't rewatched that over the years. But, but like when I watched it back on dark side, it was worse than I remembered just like with the questions of drug use and where do you go now? How do you feed your family? Like, uh, what uh, are you doing, man? So like, yeah, I mean, we know WWE has done a lot of poor taste things over the years and this, yeah, I guess this one does kind of come up when people talk about that, but not as much as it should. I mean, this is it's, up there.
2: It's, it's, is it Mount it's, Rushmore of poor WWE taste? i think it is yeah i think it is she hasn't even had time to process the information yet you know and like there's a camera like zooming in on the face like yeah get those tears going by asking those tough questions vince shit that's good tv and it's just like you look at it and you're like oh man this just shows except i felt the same when i watched it for the book knowing how bad it was and i'm just like sitting there in awe like this is just goes to show how deep in the toilet bowl vince is willing to lick
1: (laughs) (laughs) seriously no kidding
2: um um, you're a On the lighter side of the talking department,
0: (laughs) uh, no pun intended, Uh, Kim Wood obviously has gotten a lot of attention uh, for his, I don't know, lack of a better term, performance uh, on the Dark Side of the Ring podcast. Now, he was on the WWE DVD. People seem to have forgotten that. But he was a Mm. lot more um, forthright, is maybe the right term, on this one. You obviously talked to him a lot for the book. Yeah. And you talked about, you know, they've got five hours of stuff. You know the producers of the documentary. Well, you've got to have a lot of stuff too. How critical is it to Kim Wood's honesty that he has like no connections to pro wrestling or the the, the major players within the industry?
2: I think uh, you know, Kim Wood is Kim Wood. I've got fifteen hours of recorded calls from when I was interviewing Kim for the book because he just he does and he does not give a fuck. He's the way he is in real life. It's just. <laughs> This is funny you bring this up. I might have said this when we talked about this at the time, but Kim Wood told me that when they interviewed him for the Pillman documentary in 2006, he, he pretty much did the exact same thing. Five hours, told them everything, and they just hacked him to pieces. And they barely, you know, what you saw was a very kind of calm. He even said the line which they didn't show on the on the, on the the documentary, which I put in the book, about how um, if, if, if uh, Brian was around when Steph came along, He'd have got there first before Triple H. He said that to them on, their do- on the WWE recorded documentary. He said that to them. And of course, somehow didn't make the cutting room floor. But they, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, it didn't make the final cut. It did make the cutting room floor. But uh, yeah, that, that's Kim, man. He's, just, he, he, he's, he's, he's incredibly intelligent. And it's really I think it's really good that people saw him talk his way to understand that this was the guy that was shaping Brian Pillman's perspective. Because when you look at it through that lens, man, does it become crystal clear the way that Brian Pillman looked at these guys and just, again, because like you know, the, the great line that everybody repeats of, of, you know, what do you do with a whore, you fuck them, that, that Kim says about Vince. He, you know, he said that to me. He said, you know, again, he has so little regard for Vince and Bishop during that time. <laughs> it's beautiful. I mean, I've been emailing him for the last few days and it's just like, he, he doesn't care. He doesn't, you know, the, the people he's been around in his life, Kim Wood. These guys are small fry compared to that. So, so you know, he just laughs at it.
1: Liam, uh, Kim Wood comparing Vince McMahon to a whore—is that a top five moment in the history of this great sport?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. And so. it wasn't even just the fact that he said it; it's the shrug afterwards, was right? Just like I said that, and I don't give a fuck that I said it. Tremendous.
0: Now that was not left on the cutting room floor for the pillman WWE DVD. I can't imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um. So you mentioned another name, and I suppose we should get to this guy. Um, Eric Bischoff was in the documentary. Um, What did you think about his performance and him still being on an island, clinging to this notion that, he willfully gave the release and knew what was going on rather than being worked as opposed to the stories you've told kim wood tells you know Melzer side i mean it's kind of like everyone is on this side and then bischoff's off to himself on the island what did you think of bischoff still clinging to that
2: uh a couple things so i think it's kind of beautiful in a way <laughs> don't you think it's like when a kid knows santa claus isn't really real but he tells himself that it is anyway <laughs> Like I, 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 it was quite admirable to see his conviction after all these years that he knows he still thinks he knows something that everybody else didn't know, when that was the entire approach to what was going on. Yeah, it, thing with Eric to give a modicum of credit—if this isn't even credit, it's just like more of an alibi—I can understand him having absolutely no. Yeah, his memory sucks. Like his memory is legitimately awful. He'll be the first to say it. So, like, I don't even think that, like, I don't even know that he remembered. And there was a point in the documentary where he's talking about the figures that Brian Pillman wanted in his contract, about how he was he was on 225, wanted four. And that, to me, stuck out like a sore thumb. Like, how the fuck do you remember that? Like, right. you surely have read up on this recently, because there's no way, given your lack of memory for certain other things, that you remember that. I, you know, it, it's, you know, some people... Uh, it, 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 you know, it was laughable. Let's, let's call a spade a spade. In, in terms of trying to to still push this idea, and he's going to, you know, because otherwise, it's the reason he didn't like the book in the first place. He's the mark in the scam. And the whole the whole point of concocting this idea, the reason why it worked was because Kim Wood had the belief that this guy is a mark for himself. And as a result, he will never want to... He First of all, the one, he'll want to be the guy who's pulling the rib on all the other guys even though he's already in power, even though he's already the boss, he still would want the perception that he's controlling this master plan ahead of them in some strange way. Um, and, and, you know, fuck, it's, it's kind of beautiful because like the fact that he was such, a, the, the nature of Bischoff, that being his nature, at least Kim's perception of his nature, is the reason why in the end, he will, he will give you the money. And he actually did make the bigger offer, which again is another thing that I think is, you know, Eric, missed or didn't you know, didn't say because obviously it breaks his narrative but the truth is he did make the bigger offer to Brian and Brian took the lower offer because of the, the deal the 90-day release clause that uh, they weren't going to break even though they broke it for other people but that's just the way it is and I, I don't think we're ever going to get anything else out of Bischoff even though the funny thing is Bischoff in previous you know, interviews in years gone by has actually kind of acknowledged that yeah it, it's it was what it was now he's, he's He's, he's sticking to his guns like it's 1996 all over again, which is very bizarre, but I think trying to read anything more into it than that with Eric is a waste of time. Rumors
0: and innuendo, pro wrestling's equivalent of shouting fake news at somebody because you have no yeah. argument to right. uh, counter them. Um, you use certain word terms to describe Bischoff, Mark, for himself, whatnot. He doesn't strike me as a dumb person. He doesn't... Be- you don't think that he really believes what he's saying? He's just trying to save face publicly.
2: Yeah, I don't believe. I, I don't believe him. I, I don't believe him because he wouldn't have said, "If you're going to okay." Juxtapose Kim. I'll tell you this right. I can guarantee Kim Wood in two thousand and five said the exact same stories in the exact same way as he has in two thousand and twenty-one when it comes to Brian Pillman. I know that for a fact. Not a break in the story. Not a flub. Not a difference. Not a flaw. Bischoff it's you know it goes from you know doesn't doesn't know if, if you know thinks that prime probably worked him kind of acknowledges that he did to now it's like he, his if he has if he truly had the conviction that he had his story wouldn't have changed so i don't believe that that he really believes it other than this is basically a way to tell the story it might be a thing where he's resentful of the fact that you know he's kind of seen the way that he's seen especially because he did accomplish something incredibly impressive all those years ago and and you know the, the fact that now like you know this story comes along that makes him look like a goof maybe he's, he's he maybe just feels like he doesn't want to get beaten up anymore and he just wants to kind of stick to his guns and, and and mount a defense for himself but again it's kind of a sad state of the media where you know you can get away with that yeah even
0: conrad to his credit because i remember listening to that podcast um oh yeah and i remember getting angry you guys will laugh at this i was on the treadmill listening to it And I, and you know how it like measures your heart rate, like an (laughs) aspirin. Oh
1: my God. I know where this is going. Yeah.
0: And I'm running, I'm getting really mad because I think I texted you right after I listened both of you right after I listened to when Bischoff talked about Pillman and the heart rate thing, like, like it slowed down the treadmill, like had to like automatically slow down because like my heart rate was so elevated. I was getting so fired up, but Conrad like called him out. He's like, I thought he was going to like end the podcast with bischoff so Not did like i particular podcast, i mean like the entire idea of the pipe he's like dude this is why people say i shouldn't even be doing this podcast who's gonna believe that you intentionally let someone out of a deal to go to wwf in the middle of the monday night
2: wars right yeah let's, yeah. let's, so you, can, let's you can imagine my heart rate when i was listening to that thing <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. let's, let's address that liam because uh so i could talk about the book at the top and you had an opportunity to go to vegas to do the the panel at starcast on pillman's life you're on the stage with dave meltzer brian jr and you interacted with eric bischoff that weekend do you want to tell the listeners about that and respond
2: yeah, I'm, ve- I'm very glad to give me a chance to say this um, because obviously kim wood was on observer radio a couple of days ago and mentioned the story and i wanted to have a chance to kind of give the full story to anybody who didn't hear it because he mentioned that bischoff cornered me and w- was complaining about the book which isn't exactly how it went down um and eric you know again i don't want to give him too much credit i think that makes him sound bad and worse, maybe worse in this situation than it actually really was and also because the real story is more entertaining so i'll set i'll set the scene to try and bring a little bit more to it i was at the pool at the tuscany with my brother who had just won on uh, he won some money at caesar so he was basically lying by the pool buying expensive cocktails and just chatting to the waitress. This is how all good uh, stories begin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like this. Yes. And, and I was like, you tuss know tuss what? Yeah. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to just head up to my room for a bit and I'll, I'll yeah, I'll catch up with you a little while. I'll do what you want. So I, I'm heading up and on my way to go to my room, I'm passing because it was just the weirdest weekend anyway, because The Tuscany was one of two hotels that they were using to base everybody out of. So, like, there's one point where I'm just, like, going to, like, go and get something from the shop. And here's Brutus Beefcake walking past me looking like just the sleaziest fucking guy you've ever seen. (laughs) Just, oh, God, just look like a mess. And (laughs) as I go from the pool. So a normal Friday is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) As I go from the pool up to my room, I'm passing this, like, all these luminaries. Like, hey, there's Glacier. That's interesting. Stevie Ray's standing over there. And then what really should have been a telltale sign, I looked at the bar and I see Sonny Ono. It's like, hmm, what's he doing here? That should have been a dead giveaway for what was about to happen. I turn around the corner to get on, on the elevator and Bischoff is standing there by himself. And I just kind of like walk up to his side and kind of look over to him. And he kind of, he, he knows that I'm recognizing him. So he puts on this like <laughs> smile face and like you know, extends his hand. And I just kind of like give it a little chuckle and, and shake his hand back, and I'm holding his hand, and as I'm holding his hand, I say to him, "I hope you like difficult rides in the elevator because this is probably going to be one." And he kind of, gets this like, kind of he kind of gets this puzzled look on his face, and as we enter, I say to him, "Yeah, the uh, the Brian Pillman book that you buried on your podcast, uh, I'm the guy that wrote it. So now that I have a chance to talk to you, I'd like you to explain why you were so full of shit on that show," which was a, a, you know, a great thrill to be able to say that to him. Um, and he was just like, but probably because again, I, if anything, when the story that Kim said that he cornered me, if anything, it was probably the opposite, which probably doesn't make me look too good, but I don't really care. So I just said to him, you know, exactly what I said, why were you so full of shit on the show? And he basically said, oh, well, I think I just, must, I, I just thought that it was poorly written. I was like, oh, really? Okay. So tell me what you, uh, tell me what you, you didn't like about the book then since you clearly didn't read it. And he's went, I read enough. I said, you didn't read it. And he goes, I read enough. I said, you didn't fucking read it. Conrad sent you notes. I know for a fact. So why are you lying? You didn't read it. And I said, I can tell you for a fact you didn't read it because on your podcast, you told a story about how the book says that, that, uh, that Bishop when he would negotiate with the guys, that he would take his false teeth out, put them on a plate, crack his knuckles. He's got pictures of him doing his, his, uh, his karate and his Kung foolery on the wall. And and basically that you know the 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 story as it was given to me by Kim Wood was Brian told Kim this. And this was kind of the basis for Kim saying, "Her, huh, Well, if he if he wants people to think he's a tough guy, they're sending you a red flag that they can be fucked with and we can get this guy, you know. And and he's like, Yeah, that story was such bullshit. And I said, Yeah, but the book doesn't say that it happens. The book says that Brian told Kim that and Kim's relaying the story, but you wouldn't know the difference because you didn't read it. And he kind of like stood there and he was like, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying, man. And then he goes, "Man, this convention's really big, huh?" <laughs> and and it's like with that, it's just like it's that's it. It's that's that's the end of this conversation. He he doesn't want to talk about this topic anymore. I I, I had I, I gave him his chance for a rebuttal after I told him how he was wrong and he didn't have an answer, so that was the end of that. And then he walked on his merry way to to do the Stevie Ray podcast or something. Wow, wow! Is he still paying Stevie Ray? By the way. <laughs> you, might, you might be, actually. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about Eric's financial state these days. But uh, What a great story that is. That was even better than the one I got before.
0: Wow. Uh, <laughs> so glad cute. you got to tell that. <laughs> the economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Yeah, so you you talked about, you know, how there was the, the, the trio situation with Rochelle and Melanie and Brian. And you really have to read your book to understand the full scope of that. Like they covered it on the show a little bit, but if you want all the details, you know, like you're talking about, read the book, read Liam's book. You'll get kind of the full scope of everything that happened. And a lot of people were saying, yeah, Melanie kind of came off as the heel in this. I saw some other people saying Brittany was like the star of it along with Kim Wood. And I was, I just wanted to ask you, and just for the sake of our listeners, Uh, who from the Pillman family, were you able to interview in writing the book? Did you talk to Brittany? Did you talk to Melanie? What were those interactions like?
2: No, it was Brittany. I tried to get, sorry, Melanie. I tried to get a hold of, couldn't get her. uh, Brittany. I did Brian Jr. I did Linda Pillman, who I thought was an absolute gem in this as as she was in the book. And is just a great human being. Uh, she was awesome. Um, and so from the Pillman family, those were the key three, Linda, Brian and Brittany. Um, at the, at the point when I spoke to them, I believe they were all living together in, in the house that, that Linda has bought for them. Danny was didn't live there, so I didn't get a chance to speak to her. Um, but yeah, they, they were all great, all welcoming, all wanting to talk about their dad. And that's the thing that was going to make this so easy, and, and it always was. The people, when I was doing the book, and I'm sure for this podcast too, they all want to talk about Brian. There's something unique about him and his case that makes you want to tell the stories. The stories are so interesting, they're so exciting, and, and so unique. It's just like you know what we You know, they want a chance to talk. They want a chance to kind of relay and kind of you know, relive, you know, relive the memory of Brian a little bit. So it was, it was very easy for me, and, and they were all completely forthcoming as they as they were on the on the documentary.
0: You know, I saw something on Twitter. I think it was the day of part two. Somebody wrote, "Can you imagine?" And it, it's really ludicrous to even try to imagine the somebody um, a modern day equivalent of Brian Pillman. In 20, like it just couldn't happen the way wrestling is like somebody, you know, obviously there needs to be a lot of things that exist, you know, mm. two companies to play off each other personalities like that, but like, there's just no, like to the point of this story being so unique, there's just never really going to be another performer, another guy in this business like that, is there?
2: I don't think so. I, th- I, th- I think that the you know the the layout, the dynamics of of the industry have changed so greatly. It was interesting when CM Punk was doing this stuff in 2012, 11, 11, The 11, 11. Yeah. Summer of Punk. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The Summer of Punk, two thousand eleven, the promo in Vegas. That was so interesting to me, just being a, a giant Pillman fan and a student of his. Was like, okay, everybody's really quite into this but nobody believes it in the same way. It's not the same thing. And I think that a lot of people kind of made the disconnect. Uh, there was a bit of a disconnect in the way that people looked at it where they thought, oh my God, this is so incredible because of all this inside stuff. They would talk about how so many you know, lapsed fans had come back because of that. And I'm sure maybe to a degree that was true, but it didn't really show that much in the numbers. And that was kind of the thing that was the interesting part of Pillman was that it didn't there either. And the, and the design was never, for everything that Brian was doing, the design was never really to draw money with that period of time the loose cannon it was just get attention get attention get attention because then it will pay off when the contract time comes with punk it was something that they put in place while his contract was coming again this is actually kind of it's like the reverse pillman the punk thing was which is funny the company put together this fake loose cannon even though punk's contract was legitimately coming up and was able to get a better deal because of it So it was kind of a, you know, that's probably the closest that you're ever going to be able to come. But the interesting thing is, as much as the dynamics have changed greatly, now with Twitter and with the internet and with there being so fewer casual fans now as there were then, you've got a hub of people now who kind of have the same knowledge base when they watch TV. And if anything, you could probably fuck with that if you really wanted to, because now there's such an assumption of knowledge. Now people think they know so much that when something ever happens that deviates from it it catches people ajar and and i'm not saying i don't think you could have another brian pillman again i think that's what makes this case so interesting especially this many years later because the further we go from the business being the way it was then the more spectacular and stand out the story becomes but at the same time it's like you probably could mess with this audience more than you do and again you've got to be careful that you don't dip into wcw territory of doing that you know the inside stuff that is just never going to draw money and doesn't do anything for anybody apart from fool the wrestlers who aren't being fooled and creates that horrible kind of echo chamber of disgust and resentment.
1: Do you think, do you think the filmmakers did a good job in kind of portraying how edgy that was for the time? Because, you know, for younger fans watching today, the stuff that he was doing with the loose cannon, like, Colin, Kevin, Sullivan, Booker, man in the ring. They might not think that that's a huge deal now, right? But like when that was happening in 95 and in 96, like that was, you didn't, it didn't happen back then. So yeah. they really had to like lay the case that it was a different industry back then. Do you think that they did a good job getting that across?
2: They, they did an admirable job, I think. I think, I think they they did. They, I think they did. They, think they set the table, but it's like, it's the equivalent of the ladder match, you know, with, with Sean and Razor, where it's like you you show people today, yeah, they, they yeah, the people who have lived through CM Punk and who have lived through kind of insider comments and, and, and references to real life that have kind of been commonplace and, and and barely really even register with people anymore. Um, you know, uh, fucking, what was it on last week? Scorpio Sky called Sting Steve, yeah, in mm-hmm. his promo, which I could have done without, but like stuff like that, you know, back. you can you imagine back in the day, like someone called Hulk Terry, like yeah, Zeus was Hook <laughs> Terry, like it's just that that's. Just, you know, it's just not going to happen now. That kind of stuff, it, it's like for ducks back to the audience now because it's like been there, done it, seen it. And, and you know, again, yeah, Brian, the whole idea that, that Pillman had was you've got to do something that hasn't been done before. You've got to do something that no one has ever seen. And you're going to have to do something that creates an awful lot of talk and attention. And what, what area can you create talk in? And the area that you can create talking is the insider crowd and that was the key the timing of it was so absolutely critical ec you know, there's an ecW chant at King of the Ring 95 there's there's ground swells of smart fans who are kind of resistant to the big two and it's and it's that kind of newsletter crowd it's the tape trading crowd it's the it's the it's the real hardcore fans the stuff that he was doing was appealing to it wasn't appealing to the casual fan they had no fucking idea what he was doing probably other than wow he seems like he's whacked but that's about it but like the, the, the people who who know. All they're talking about is Brian Pillman. And because guys like Vince and guys like Bischoff, they're very detached from reality when you're in that world because you're working 24-7. So when, you, when, the, when the, the only chatter you hear from this this kind of small community, relatively small community at that time, is really, really loud, Brian Pillman, Brian Pillman, Brian Pillman. Again, even if Vince doesn't hear it, Bruce Pritchard's going to hear it. Jim Ross is going to hear it. Jim Cornette's going to hear it. And so as soon as that starts, they're following, and again, at that time, end of '95, start '96. Neither side was ahead in the war. It's very even. Both sides are looking for that one thing, whatever it's going to be, to pull ahead. And and you got all these people saying, Brian Pillman's, you know, oh my God, this is insane. This is revolutionary. We've never seen it before. And again, it was all it was that manipulation of the environment to create the bidding war, which they talked about a lot on Dark Side of the Ring. And I do think they did a good job of, of at least emphasizing that aspect of things again you've only got so much time so again and that's one of those things where when it was finished i'm sure you felt the same this could have been a five-part series
0: yeah. oh sure i mean yeah we, we were joking about you know um with that savage doc that just aired i was like right if, if, if we laid out and said hey here on top Rup Nation, we're going to examine the career of randy savage how long is that going to go yeah <laughs> right? i mean no we're going to do like nine parts like say with Phil and you know, i think you know a, a way maybe i'm thinking in my head listening to you liam I'll say what she just did to summarize what Pilman was trying to do. He wasn't trying to draw money for any promotion. He was just trying to draw money for himself.
2: Absolutely. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it was
0: a very business-oriented decision. I mean, we, we don't have a lot of people like that. You know, I mean, it talked about, I mean, you know, it, it's a different thing, but Kevin Nash talked about, you know, lo- always looking at it as a business and Pillman was just looking mm. at it as a business. He didn't really want, he wasn't looking to necessarily line the pockets of Vince McMahon or Eric Bischoff. He was smartly so trying to, line his own pockets um with the creation of the character um and the effect it had on his personal life towards the end do you think that was covered um in an appropriate uh
2: fashion as we Uh, kind of moved into part two of the? yeah i mean they 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 did touch on it they touched on aspects of you know you, you, you all of a sudden that's brian now brian is he's kind of just metamorphosized into this is the way he is he's living this character 24 7 but again i think this that's one of those things where the deeper you go the more you realize how true that is like i think that like that you know the stuff about how he bought the hummer on a whim the stuff like how and again he got he got a deal on it but you know these (laughs) these things that were like they're not they weren't conducive to his end goal, and that the thing that's funny is like when this all starts, everything is so absolutely on point. It's laser focused. It's such precision. It's a precision that you you, you didn't see from individuals like you say focusing on trying to get themselves over rather than trying to draw money for for a company. This it, there was something unique about it that basically ev- everything he was doing was was moving towards the end game. And then as he walks into the character more and more and more, and it's something the Raven who was awesome in the book talked about, you know, to to me, it was like the thing, because it happened to him too, and he was telling, he was explaining the entire process. He was like, basically, what happens is when it begins, art imitates life. There was something, you know, in his own character, Raven, he was, you know, he was, he was unhappy with his life. And then there were things that he was, you know, kind of miserable about. So he brings out himself as a character. That's my character. And then as time goes by, because he's living that now, and he's trying to make it as convincing and as good as possible by reaching into himself basically that, that line gets blurred. And the way he described it was at first, art imitates life. And then in the end, life will imitate art. It happens to, to, to a lot of guys who throw themselves in that deeply. And in Brian's case, this was coming off the back of Rochelle committing suicide. And it was coming again at this crucial point in his career. He's 33 years old. His body is starting to break down. He knows he can't be flying Brian forever. He wants to be a top guy and he's, he's seeing the window close and he knows he has to do something drastic. And he throws himself into this wholeheartedly at possibly as a personal release, but again, more as a business thing. But again, those lines blur and this time went by, I mean, you're hearing it from like, you know, Raven talking about how, you know, after, after Cyber Slam, where he debuts in ECW in 96, they're at the hotel room and they just have a cocaine binge, you know? And like, you know, Brian's just like, and again, you know, Brian was like that anyway. He, you know, he, he did his, you know, he did stuff. Um, but it was just the way he was I mean, like again the the lines get blurred the, the, the staying up at all hours of the night trying to convince people you're crazy you're gonna end up going fucking crazy and he ended up you know he ended up you know totaling that hummer which ruined you know ruined everything and, and was pretty much the, the beginning of the end of the poor bastard's life yeah you after that obviously after that we even talk to you again talking about part two the aftermath of the hummer wreck where he's trying to keep up and he's trying to medicate himself and it's just like this is just an absolute disaster. And that's the one thing when, when Carl was talking earlier on about, you know, when you watch the, the Melanie interview back and you realize as bad as you thought it was at the time, it's worse when you see it. There were, there were times when I was doing the book, and, and and even now, if you watch Raw from 97, there were times where, like, Brian will do a run-in or Brian will do something, and you just see him limping, and he's, he's walking askew. And you just see it and you just think, Jesus Christ, like, this guy – has no business doing any of this. Like that match at SummerSlam 97, he has yeah, with Gold. I was just to bring that up to finish. Oh my God, which is just an absolute train wreck. And this, again, there's thing's in that match. There's a spot that Pillman loved to do in his big matches where he'd be on the top rope and the guy would rocket launcher him, crotch first on the top rope. And he did it a lot. He tries to do it in the match with Goldust, except that that means he has to land on his feet. So he, he tries to shift his weight so that he doesn't land on his feet, and he just fucking crashes face first on the ring apron and just eats it. And it's like, you should not be doing this, Brian. You're trying so hard to, to, to you know sustain what you are and your reputation and your position in this company, and it ain't happening. You know, it's the, Your body won't go with you. And unfortunately, it, it really didn't go with him at the end.
1: Yeah, you hear Steve Austin talking about how he could barely get through the airport you know, at the time. And yet he was still somehow wrestling and you kind of see what's coming happening now, looking back. And it's so unfortunate just with the timing, you know, because obviously he would have gotten a big money offer uh, at the time he was doing the loose cannon thing. And that, you know, that kind of changed the trajectory of his career. Uh, Brian in a lot of ways was like the attitude era before the attitude era, right? Like he was the perfect guy as the business was transitioning where you could have seen him if he could work how he used to like a rocket ship right he could have been Mm -hmm. one of the top stars in wrestling and it's it's like one of those ultimate what-if scenarios when you think about it and they kind of get into that a little bit at the end and you know how tragic that portion of the story is where his kids were barely able to get meals and they could have been like steve austin's you know or living in a situation where they don't have not saying they would have been living in a different country from steve austin but they could have been like uh you know not wanting for anything they could have had a lot of money because their dad would have been in this massive massive star and it just really sucks looking back how like everything aligned with the business and the way the business went and he wasn't able to capitalize on that i mean do you agree with that do you where do you think his career arc would have went had that hummer accident not happened
2: yeah there's a lot to disseminate that one of the things a quote that i didn't put in the book but i loved it paul Heyman said once that somebody asked Heyman, don't you think that pillman was ahead of his time And Heyman comes back and says, no, he was the master of the time that he was in. Because again, you couldn't have done that that much later. The fact that he was there at the crest of the wave of that that kind of style of personality, I think that sums it up perfectly. In terms of his career trajectory, man, that personality, those promos with a good working ability, even if it wasn't as good as it was before, it still would have been really good. Um, You throw that in the WWF when Sean's champ, and Austin's getting hot and Brett's there that you, you could do so much. And obviously he was never intending to go to the WF really. That wasn't really his, his, his end game. Mm-hmm. But I think when you look at the way that it kind of went, if you try and if you pretend, which is hard to do that Brian's everything else around Brian was going to be the same anyway, which who knows if it would have, but if Brian had gone to WCW as he'd originally planned, stuck with WCW as he originally planned, got the good deal and all that stuff, he still would have been behind Hogan, Savage, Sting, Luger, and Flair, the incoming Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. He still probably wouldn't have gotten what he truly wanted. What he wanted, he wanted main event money, and he wanted the respect and the prestige of being a top guy. That, that, was, that was his goal. Really, it was about the money, but when you get one, you get the other, and he absolutely wanted to be a top guy. I don't think he gets truly what he wants. Because as the business explodes, he's probably not going to get ahead of all those guys in WCW. And his, the level of his money probably only increases as the business does. So I think what probably happens is, if you look at the WWF and how things went over there, that three-year deal he would have signed with Bischoff, that's coming up in the start of 99, when Steve Austin is red hot, Jim Ross is over there, Cornette's over there. Brian probably would have been in the Jericho position of everybody saying he could be a top guy, but not being a top guy. I think that he probably ends up there anyway, um, and especially because at that time they were they were offering big money to get guys to jump. So I think that he probably would have he probably would have ended up there anyway. I think. God,
1: you can imagine '99 him main eventing with Steve Austin, building off that oh. you know that history. They tried a little bit when he came over, but obviously they couldn't do what they could have done in '99 if there was no car crash. Yes. My they god.
0: Needed, they needed new heels in 99.
1: Exactly. I oh did a god did they ever <laughs> I did a podcast with a uh, friend Zach Hadorn over at the Torch several months ago and we looked at Austin's 99 pay-per-view run, and you know, he's working with like the same guys over and over. So if you could insert a healthy Brian Pillman into that, wow. Yeah,
2: that's it. There's one point where the torch in ninety-nine is talking about the WDF depth chart on the heel side, and it was like Undertaker, Triple H, Boss Man. Jarrett and it's like holy shit like, yeah. <laughs> you don't realize how bad that
0: is until you really see it people forget man I mean the business was on fire so I guess it's just water under the bridge but from Wrestlemania 15 until they figured out Triple H at the end of the year you know mm-hmm. figured out by you know reassembling DX as his lackeys obviously the addition of Stephanie to the presentation uh put him over the hump there was not a lot there in WWF he would have fit perfectly I mean we know Steve you know, they talked about it in his documentary. He was kind of not keen on a lot of the new guys they were trying yeah. to have work
2: with him. He would have obviously been keen on working with Brian. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, and you see, you see the way he was, and you wonder if he could have stayed hot, if he could have stayed like the Brian Pillman that people think he could have been, and saw glimpses of in '96. It's like he feels like he'd be the Piper to Austin's Hogan. You know, that 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 type of dynamic, and it's like that's where we get so sad because it's like you didn't even get to see really a glimpse of that. Yeah. Absolutely. How about uh, Brian Jr.? Obviously, now in
0: AEW they explored that at the end. You know him getting his wrestling career started. Um, what do you think about you know Brian Jr. now, kind of as a performer, and how hard it is? Because we've seen this you know countless number of times following a famous dad in this business.
2: Yeah, it's tough. I think it's it's doubly tough for him because it wasn't. Although, actually, maybe in a way, this kind of mirrors his dad. He wasn't super religious from what I understand about watching wrestling before he got in. You know, he kind of had like a passing interest. I remember him telling me that like he liked Chris Jericho and stuff like that. But he he wasn't a student before he got in. I'm sure he's a student now. But I th- I think it's always gonna be hard. In a sense, it's like it's 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 as it always tends to be, it's the gift and the curse at the same time. Look at Dustin Rhodes. Dustin Again, especially with modern eyes, you look back and like, fuck, Dustin was really good, really quick. But during those those first couple of years when Dusty was the booker in WCW, people couldn't get it out of their mouths. Oh, nepotism. Oh, Dustin's getting the push because of who his dad is and stuff like that. And that held him back for years because people, I don't think, appreciate how good Dustin was until later when actually he was banging out great stuff, you know, pretty much. I mean, not straight away, but like it didn't take him long you know, and, and again, he's working with good guys as well, Yeah. but it, it, it is that gift and curse situation. And some, and you know, sometimes you can, you can, I think there's a chance that if, if crowds are around now and Brian Pillman Jr. Walked out on TV this week, I think he'd get a massive reaction from the way that he conducted himself on dark side of the ring. He came off, man, when he's talking about how no one played catch with him and he wanted his dad to play catch with him. That was fucking brutal. Mm-hmm. And it's like these, you know, there's a, you know, this, there's something there they could, and again, like the know, when you see him, at double or nothing. He was in the battle royal, uh, the first ever, the first AEW show, double or nothing. And we're watching him walking down the aisle with like, you know, he, he's dressed like a star. He's got the big blonde mullet and everything like that at the time, and it's like he he stands out in the crowd, and that's 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 half the battle, especially in this modern landscape. And it's like if he can if he can not look like, you know, because obviously the 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 the, radio, the talent level of the in ring is is higher now than it's been in, 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 in years when it comes to mainstream American wrestling. But at the same time, the intangibles are so, are, are, the intangibles in a lot of guys are not where they used to be. So now you've got a guy like Brian Jr. who really, if, 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 if Brian Jr. can make it, it will be because of his intangibles. And it's just about harnessing it, getting the chance to do it. And we'll see, you know, in AEW has been slot in a certain position um, for certain reasons. And I think that it's just the thing of when, when it's his time, yeah and we'll see when it's his time we'll see i'm not even sure i don't even believe that he's under contract with AEW. so
1: yeah last i heard it he was just yeah working spots for him so i mean he's on there a lot but it's not like yeah. a long-term deal
2: yeah so maybe maybe he'll play like his dad now that he's got this attention and momentum and he'll play both sides <laughs> there that you be go something? <laughs> that would be something
1: oh man uh kyle did you have anything else that you were, I, I saw your kind of general list of questions i think we hit all those didn't
0: we uh, no i think we did i you know the the bischoff stuff the kim wood stuff, the um particularly clarifying what happened in vegas you know fear and loathing with bischoff there what a <laughs> incredible situation i'm glad so glad you gave this to melanie yeah i just think um you know overall it's just always so great to talk to liam and mm-hmm. you know, obviously a very good friend it's great to talk to him you know whether the mics are turned on or not i enjoy texting him random things about pro wrestling his thoughts on dynamite and whatnot but uh yeah i, I don't know it's it's so awesome that you know we watch this documentary everybody really likes it and it's like oh hey we know the guy who wrote <laughs> the definitive book on the man's life it's absolutely cool
1: plus you guys have been collaborating over on squared circle gazette radio as i understand liam you're recording later this week with kyle so we for- will
2: be we, we will be continuing our 1991 series which has been it's been, granted folks i know the break has been long since the last one but bear with us there's a lot to sift through uh but yeah, the 1991 series has been an absolute blast. Kyle's takes and perspectives are always gold as they are on this show. And uh, yeah, it's just great to, to to go through that period of time, man. I love, yeah. So that's some of the most fun like podcasting I've done in in forever because it's just so great to go and watch that television back, see, and again the notes from the time. Which again, as you're a fan, you don't really see it. So like you kind of like as you, as you're doing it concurrently, like Meltzer's notes combined with the TV, and it's just like holy christ like this was either better or worse or, or than you expect and it's just it's 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 a lot of fun um i'll be i'll be waving the adnan flag as it were
1: <laughs> i mean when those when those new episodes drop in our group text of the top rope nation people justin and i it's like an orgy of wrestling fandom talking about <laughs> yeah. those shows i mean it's just they're unbelievable you guys did the 1990 series you're going to be concluding the 91 series hopefully more in the future after that i think. All of our listeners certainly need to check it out because Kyle, yes, the uh, the rain man of of wrestling knowledge and and Liam, the award winning author. You can't beat that historical coverage.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you. So we're only looking at July and August coming up. And, you know, people like, oh, that's two months. That's no big deal. But I think if you were around at that time and you hear, oh, my God, July and August of 1991. I, you know, Liam, I don't know about you. I've looked at our final draft. And by the way, I hope that you, you don't sit back in your private time and say, oh my <laughs> God, I'm freaking doing this with the Randy Savage of podcasting. How OCD is this guy with notes? Like, I send Liam these notes and I think, I like write out the jokes I'm going to tell like in the podcast. <laughs> and you've seen it too, Ryan. Like I'll write in the notes, yeah. "Never to tell this joke. Make guys. sure
1: to reference this, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: make sure to reference this. Um, but I mean, it's insane. I mean, we're going to talk, later this week for about three hours of that period, we think. And will not get to the Ric Flair coming to WWF story. That's how much happens just with, I mean, wow. I mean, you know, the fallout of of, of George Zahorian and Hulk Hogan's, but I cannot wait because I I can
1: see it. him getting aroused from here. Oh,
0: have you watched I, it, I watched Eddie? it last night. I watched it last night. Hulk Hogan at our City Hall. People can find it on YouTube. It is 13 minutes. If anyone's ever wanted to watch 13 consecutive minutes of lying, google hulk hogan on our city hall 1991 and watch that clip because he literally does not say one accurate thing for 13 minutes it is a <laughs> true uh just marvel uh, to, to watch that back uh, with all this perspective but yeah we're gonna talk about that in summer slam the match made in heaven the match made in hell sid justice as a referee the ultimate warrior leaving
2: can't wait awesome dude it's, it's immense we were talking before about how if you did a history of randy savage it'd be like nine you know a nine part series with three hours of time at least this it feels that way with this like and it's 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 so deep and it's so much fun it's it's yeah. a blast i've treated it like a report to be honest i'm so desperate. like i'm like
0: <laughs> okay we cannot miss a single detail i've rewritten it actually I actually probably send you another email
1: Brilliant! I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I can't wait. Liam, do you have any other projects coming up you can mention, or uh, that maybe you can't mention?
2: <laughs> uh you know what? Yeah, uh, we'll, see. we'll see. We'll see. Last, right. last, last time I had to, to kind of sidestep it, and I might have to do the same this time. But uh, nothing, no, nothing that's immediate anyway. But if if if, if, it, if things come together and the time is right, I'll be sure to let you guys know first. Awesome. Wink if
0: you're excited about your career in professional wrestling.
2: <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs>
1: that's our guy. <laughs> Love it. Liam O'Rourke. Thank you so much. Yeah. Like I said, everyone check out squared circle Gazette radio crazy, like a Fox is, is the book. If you enjoy dark side of the ring, you have to read the book. You'll get the full picture there. Really appreciate it. Always great to talk to this guy. Uh, as far as top rope nation goes, our next broadcast will be following a, what is it? WrestleMania backlash. Now they're calling it. Yeah. Backlash after WrestleMania, whatever it is. We'll, we'll be doing a post show uh, this Sunday night, streaming live on the YouTube channel, and then the podcast will hit the feeds immediately after that. So it's subscribe. not good,
0: Ryan. <laughs> it's, it's not good. Yeah. The podcast <laughs> will be good. The podcast will be the good. Yes.
1: <sighs> yeah, so, you know, the usual subscribe where you get your podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash top rope nation. Check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash top rope nation. Yes, Kyle.
0: And speaking of AEW, as we were just talking about moments ago with Brian Jr., uh, I believe I will be talking to you next, Mr. Drosty, Wednesday evening on the Locker Room. That is
1: true. We will be live on the Locker Room app. So I lie, that isn't our next show. We we will be Wednesday night on the Locker Room app. Uh, it's only available on Apple devices right now, but you can join us live immediately after Dynamite. ton of fun. Uh, we take calls. We talk to the listeners. Download the download the locker room app. You can follow me at R Drosty. Kyle is at TRP Kyle on there. And when you follow us, we'll alert you when we go live. If you want to hear those shows in podcast format, there's one way to do that. Uh, that is becoming a patron of the show, as Liam is patreon.com/slash Top Rope Nation. One of our best earliest patrons of the show. Uh, I'm mixing all of those locker room app shows and posting them as a bonus weekly show on Patreon. It's called Top Rope Nation Extra. You can hear it that way if you don't have an Apple device or, you know, if you want to listen on your own schedule and you can't, you don't have the time to have the app open on your phone for an hour straight on Wednesday nights. So check that out. We'll be there Wednesday night. And like I said, Sunday night after the WWE pay per view. That's all for this edition of Top Rope Nation for Liam O'Rourke and Kyle Ross. I am Ryan Droste. We'll see you next time.